Today's guest is one of the theater's top directors, with credits ranging from new musicals like Nine to Five and Wicked, to classics including Design for Living and Pal Joey, to new plays including Take Me Out, Love, Valor, Compassion, November, Blackbird, and other desert cities. But he began as an actor, and after a 17-year hiatus, he is back on Broadway as a performer, appearing in the current revival of Larry Kramer's groundbreaking work, The Normal Heart. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to spend the next hour with Joe Mantello. Thanks. It's great to be here. Hey, Joe. I say um, you've returned to Broadway after a 17-year hiatus, but in point of fact, as an actor, this is only your second Broadway credit. It is. Or, nice. or three if we count both parts of Angels in <laughs> That's America. That's true. Yes, it's, it, it is it. And I think this may be the final chapter. It's, <laughs> Um, it's, uh, you know, people say, what is it like to return to acting? And I think, well, it's so specific to this project. I didn't really have a desire to start acting again. I had really gladly and happily left that part of my life behind me. But playing Ned Weeks and Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart was something that I always wanted to do. It was the one regret that I had when I stopped acting that I never got to play this role. So to me, it's so specific to this play at this time. So you haven't suddenly gone to your agent and said, start putting me out for acting jobs Absolutely again. Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. <laughs> but it's inevitable that when people see you acting, and we're almost a generation from the last time you were on stage, that there are people seeing you as an actor who either never knew you were an actor, didn't have a chance to see you as an actor, and suddenly a lot of young casting people might be going, hmm, this guy's interesting. Just but all comers will be refused. Well, you know, first of all, that's very flattering. If that if that were to happen, that would be very flattering. But um, you know, I guess what I what this experience has taught me is to never say never. But it is unlikely that um, I certainly don't want to get out there and and pound the pavement and audition again. That was that I left behind. Well, let's tell the story of how this came to happen because it wasn't a case of there was a production of the Normal Heart that was casting and you said put me up for that. Originally, this was a one-night benefit performance reading on the West Coast, correct? Exactly. Yes. My pal, Joel Gray, came to see a play that I had directed. And as we were chatting in the lobby, I think before the show, he said, oh, guess what I'm doing? I'm directing this benefit of the normal heart in LA, one night only. I have this idea of how to do it. And I just said, you know, Offhandedly, oh, I, that, that's the one part that I always wanted to play. And he said, oh, well, come do it. And for a number of different reasons, I wasn't able to – scheduling-wise, I couldn't get there to do it. And so I just said to him, well, if you ever do it in New York – no, he told me it went well. And I said, if you ever do it in New York, I would be very interested in playing it. So how long was it from the time you said that until – this was a reading back in this fall, so it would have been the fall of 2010. Right. I think I think they did it in in, in in L.A. in July, and we did the reading in New York in October. And how much preparation did you have for that reading? For that reading, I believe – well, John Hickey and I would get together – uh, who was John, who was also in the reading, we would get together and sort of work on our own because um, of the terror of just having – I think we had about three days – of time in the room all together with Joel for that and we sort of met on our own and tried to prepare for it. And as a reading, that benefit presentation, was that 
a music stands, just get up and read the parts when you're on or were you walking around even script in hand? It was somewhat more produced than a regular reading. There were no music stands though. We begged Joel to reconsider this idea that he had. Um, it, 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 there was there was a very minimal set of uh, sort of an homage to the set at the public. It was a white walls with um, you know hundreds of names on them of people who um, had died of AIDS, and then there were I think eight directors' chairs along the back. And the way Joel envisioned it was that we would just when you were in a scene you would step forward downstage. There wasn't any set. There was there was one piece, uh, one set piece, and that was a gurney. That kind of made its way around the, the stage, um, but there was no set to speak of, and uh, we held scripts. Um, but most of us tried to be as off book as possible hmm. at that time, um, and um, that was it. It was it was you know I think we we sort of were kicking and screaming that we had to do it without music stands, but in the end, I I said to Joel, you. Damn you, you were right. Had you seen the original New York production? I did see – I saw the original production when I first moved to New York. I went by myself to see it and um, it really – it has stayed with me to this day. It's why I'm there on the stage every night. Um, it had a profound effect on me, the play uh, and especially the role and so much so that I as a 20-something young man put together <laughs> – put together a reading in my living room with a group of friends because I was so truly desperate to play this part. Wow. And so I gathered all of my friends together and assigned the parts and um, we read it and I think we had lasagna afterwards. Sometimes people say be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Is playing the part, especially having given up acting, as fulfilling – as you hoped it would be or has it proven to be a challenge in ways you didn't expect? It's been it's it's been a dream come true. So I have to – I truly um, – and be, because I know that I'm there for a finite amount of time, I think – I mean we'll see. We're three weeks into this run of a 12-week run. But um, my, my guess is, is that I will um, cherish and enjoy every single moment, which has been the case so far. It, it, you know – it's been stressful. I've been frightened. But it's a pretty great group of people and the play is extraordinary. And, um, you know, I mean the benefits that I got from it, which I wasn't expecting, was to, that I was able to uh, re-encounter George Wolfe as a director because George was really responsible for this leg of the journey. And to be in a room with him and because he's truly a master and only George I think could have pulled this off with – you know, less than two weeks of rehearsal and two days of tech. So to be around George and to watch him work his magic was just a great refresher course for me and with, with a master director. Hmm. And then I think there was also the, the – the other thing that I wasn't expecting was I was reminded again how difficult it is to be an actor. And I think I'd forgotten that. I think enough time had passed that I had forgotten the kind of the bravery, the um, energy, the you know the, everything that it takes to get up there on that stage every night. So I'm eager to return to directing with this kind of. I feel refreshed and and, and sort of going into it with a new perspective. 
You say you watched George directing, but as somebody who had been directing and even directing before you stopped acting, were you viewing your own work through a different prism or were you able to give yourself over to a director instead of being the director? In this particular case, and I think it's specific to George because I have complete and utter confidence in his taste, his brain, his vision – it was a very easy thing for me to do, to surrender to that. And George also, you know, his rehearsal room, or in this case, this rehearsal room, was very collaborative. So if there, if any of us had an idea or a contribution to the scene, that was welcomed. So, But I would say that um, I went into it, this rehearsal period, and also the rehearsal period with Joel – Really wanting to relinquish control, really wanting to put myself in the hands of someone else and allow them to make the decisions in the way that, you know, I, that I would want an actor to trust me. Even though the character is named Ned Weeks, there is no question or no secret that you are playing Larry Kramer. It's daunting to play real life characters under the best of circumstances even more daunting when the character you're playing is still alive in your case he's not only alive he's outside the theater every night and presumably in the back of the house yes what is it like to be playing the person who wrote the play about himself well i've known larry for a number of years and uh and when we sort of embarked on on this project, he was a great resource and uh, invited me over to his apartment and we spent the afternoon and he let me ask any number of silly questions and interesting questions and and um, you know, but I've also have experience of Larry as his friend. I've been on the receiving end of his wrath in life, and I've experienced his great generosity and warmth. And uh, you know, yes, it is. Ned Weeks is a is a is a version of Larry Kramer, but it is a character in a play. Mm-hmm. And so, while I tried to pull things that I felt intuited about Larry, I you know, I don't think I'm doing an impression of Larry Kramer. No, I didn't set out, I should say, to do an impression of Larry Kramer. I mean, the one real nod to him is that uh, Larry wears a lot of turquoise. He wears, you know, he's got a all of his fingers have giant turquoise rings and he has turquoise bracelets and necklaces. And I wear a single turquoise ring in the play just as a sort of a, you know, an, a nod to him. And it didn't it didn't come into uh, I didn't start wearing it until four days, four or five days into previews, and I remember the first day I put it on, I actually did. I did start to to um, gesticulate a little bit more like Larry, and I don't know what it was. There was something about the ring that that kind of changed the physicality of my performance. It was very, very odd. And have you retained that? I, it, it just it stuck with me. There's something about because I don't wear jewelry. There was something about having this gigantic piece of turquoise on my right hand that my hand took on a life of its own. It was very very strange, hmm. and it's just stayed. You have had roles in certainly three of the most important theatrical pieces to emerge out of the scourge of AIDS, having done Baltimore Waltz, Angels in America, and now Normal Heart. 
is there a difference to performing in each of these? How did how do you relate to each of them in light of the fact that they are engendered by a common source, even though they're the views of three different authors? Well, if you take them chronologically, I think that this production of The Normal Heart is very different from the, the original production that I saw in 85. Time has done something to the story. So I don't know to – you know, Normal Heart and As Is were the first – plays, first American plays that I can think of that really dealt with the subject of AIDS. I think As Is was was right before. Slightly, slightly earlier, slightly I think, before. yeah. But this play, The Normal Heart, there's an intensity to it. Like it's a dispatch from the war zone, it feels like, or it felt like when I saw it. And it sent me reeling. And I remember very, very clearly the design of the original production where it seemed to me these whitewashed plywood sheets of wood that were constantly being updated with facts and figures and people's names and it was so immediate. I think time has done something to the play. It hasn't mellowed the play but I think it feels less like a polemic. I think there's something about the way the play ends with a marriage being performed for, between these two men that has a, something that I actually truly don't even remember from the original production. And I think it's a very profound moment in this production. I don't know how time has affected it. I just – I feel that there's a kind of – there's a sorrow to it now. There's a sorrow that, that I feel – I feel doing it and I feel coming from the audience, a, a kind of a less less frantic but more – There's I, I feel real regret that people feel like, oh, we may have forgotten so much of this. Well, in this case, it is a revival. You were in the original productions of Baltimore Waltz and, um, and Angels in America. You say this is now a look back. Those were more or less contemporary. Right. At well, but I think, but I think that, that in the case of Baltimore Waltz, it really was part of a second wave of AIDS plays that involved a kind of a theatricality, a kind of a playfulness, a kind of irreverence um, that it, it, it started to morph into something else. It didn't it, – it's not that it wasn't immediate. It was very immediate and it was a very personal story that Paula Vogel told. But all of a sudden, there was a kind of a theatricality and a playfulness that was creeping in. And then you have, uh, shortly after that, Angels in America, uh, you know, a gay fantasia on national themes. And, and, and I think he took it to the next step. So it's been, um, it's been extraordinary being a part of all of the, all of these projects, even though, you know, they sort of did them out of order. One of the most remarkable things about Normal Heart, again, is that Larry Kramer is standing out there because when he wrote the play, when he was sounding the call that a lot of people weren't heeding yet when the play was new, the fact that he is still there is extraordinary. The fact that we look at it now through the eyes of all that we have learned since – brings a resonance to it. You talk about regret. Also, the idea of now he's been borne out. 
he he was right mm-hmm. to sound the alarm, and it's mm-hmm. a shame it took people so long to to hear it. Well, I think there's a generation of young people. I know that when we come out of the theater after the show, the the the, the look of sort of shock on young people's faces. You know, I think to encounter this play and hear the the, the numbers that we're talking about. You know, I think when that first piece appeared in the Times in July '81, I think it was. We were talking about forty, forty-one, forty-two people. I mean, it's astonishing. And I think there's a, there are generations of young people who don't, who don't have a context for that. And I think it's blowing their minds. Well, it's fascinating because unlike the other two plays, this is in many ways much more of a history. There's all of the humanity in it. But it does capture a very specific moment in the crisis before people quite knew it was a crisis. Yes. So it's yes. it's fascinating. Let's let's go back to uh, to your start in theater. Um, you grew up out in Illinois. Um, did you see a lot of theater growing up? I was so fortunate. I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, and we had so much theater in that little town. We had a professional company called the New American Theater. We had um, a community theater, Rockford Community Theater. And then we had a summer community theater called Starlight Theater. And our high school was just really, really big on doing an approximation of the Broadway musicals. We, you know, we would kind of rent the costumes and they would painstakingly try to recreate the sets as, you know, as much as possible. And there was a real standard. So, I would go, you know, I was blessed to have parents who not only encouraged me but were willing to, you know, take me from rehearsal to rehearsal. So I w- I was used to doing 6, 7, 8 plays a year. Wow. Um I, I, I we did and from then, what age? I mean, how how early I did you come? I probably was oh maybe 12, 13. Hmm. Yeah, and the professional theater in my town, the New American Theater, started a program called the Young American Theater, and we did a lot of plays. Hmm. Uh, but I grew up with Marin Maisie, I grew up with Jody Benson, um, Bob Robert Greenblatt, who now runs NBC. Um, it's always we, funny how there are these pockets of people who seem to crop up. I know, I know. There was, there was a. There, there, I mean, there's there's several more. Um, that we just happened to be in Rockford at the same time doing these plays, and uh, it was an, it was an extraordinary time, and I just never stopped. Mm. Well, you've saved me time. I don't have to ask how you got the nine to five gig. We <laughs> That's can, right. can go right beyond that. Um, so you did all of these shows, and so had you decided by the time you went to college? I mean, you went to North Carolina School of the Arts. You must have said, "I want to do theater." I did, but I think it was as I remember it was kind of like a, um, um, a, a like a junior year kind of decision in in high school, um, and again with the with the blessings of my parents, I uh, you know I think I, I North Carolina School of the Arts was the, one of two schools that I applied to, um, and so I didn't really have a backup plan. So, th- so thankfully, they accepted me into that freshman class in 1980 um, because I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't been accepted. And as an undergraduate, did you have to track immediately into acting, directing, what have you, or was it a general undergraduate theater degree? 
It was at the time. Now, North Carolina School of the Arts does have a directing program, but at the time, they did not. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a conservatory type program. So you know, one 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 semester would be Shakespeare, then you would do restoration drama, you would do, you know, you, you, they were really training us kind of for the regional theater movement at the time, which was, you know, it, it sort of in its heyday at the time, you know, dance movement voice. Hmm. I read a quote, and I'm not quoting it precisely, I'm paraphrasing it for brevity, that you said at one point that you thought that the school was, was was seeking to sort of sand off people's individuality in terms of performers, so that you could be all things for all jobs. Right. Is is that something you still feel? I don't think there was anything sinister behind it, but I think they were training us specifically for becoming a member of a company in a regional theater, a resident company, and so I think. The what what they 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 attempted to help us find a kind of a neutrality that would allow us to then um, take on any number of different styles, um, any different kinds of roles. So so I think it was that I, I moved to New York after I graduated school of the arts, and they were not remotely interested in a kind of a neutrality, you know, and. Uh, I think the interview that you're talking about, I did with Mary Louise Parker, who was a who was a couple of years behind me, and she was astonishing in that she never allowed that to happen. She always held on to her idiosyncrasies and the things that made her unique. Did you have to regain your idiosyncrasies? I think I did. Hmm. I think I I think I did. I think there was. Um, I mean, it was trial and error for a while, but I remember seeing. I said this to someone the other day. I remember uh, a performance that had a profound effect on me, ironically, since I just worked with her, was seeing Laurie Metcalf in Balm and Gilead. Oh, gosh, yeah. And it it was probably the most um, – it's the performance that has had the most profound effect on me in my entire life. Can you say why? Because I think she was – because she was – I'd never seen any anyone like her. I mean, Laurie is kind of an acting machine to begin with, but there was such a there was such a quirkiness, there was such an oddness. It was deeply compelling. It was funny and it was serious and it was heartbreaking. And I couldn't imagine anyone else giving that performance. And I thought it started to make sense to me. I thought, oh, it's time to figure out how to. Um, exploit what was different about my about me. That that it wasn't about trying to smooth out those edges, but it was actually what when I walked into a when I walked into an audition room, what was my particular take on it going to be, and to really find a way to um, develop that, develop mm. a point of view. So how did you do that? I mean, once you'd gotten out of school, where were the opportunities for you? What kind of acting work were you getting? Well, for, for the first few years, um, I was a member I, – I, I, along with a, a few other people, Mary Louise Parker, K. Todd Freeman, and specifically Peter Hedges, who is a novelist, screenwriter, director now, but was, was and still is a playwright. We had a company called The Edge Theater. And we, uh, you know, would meet every once in a while, and Peter would write plays for the company that would kind of, 
be specifically tailored to their talents. And and I think somewhere along the way in that, because Peter was writing for me, for all of us, he was writing to our strengths. And I started to find who I was from by what he wrote for me. Hmm. And then I became a member of the company at the Circle Rep. Again, they were they were so encouraging and so supportive that <laughs> aside from being just a bunch of oddballs, <laughs> wonderful oddballs, you know, so eccentric behavior was encouraged there. Hmm. Um, and so it just I just started to get comfortable with myself and to trust myself a little bit more. Um, and that's basically how it is. In preparing for this, finding your acting credits, it's almost as if they've been expunged. Your your agents only have well, like two. There weren't that many. There truly weren't that many. So, but there's a, there's certainly a period. I love the fact that you had done a summer stock production of Hello Dolly that starred Jane Howdyshell yes. when you must have just been finishing high school. If I have no, it right. no, no, it was it was my um, it was between my freshman and sophomore year oh, in okay. college. So yeah, it was my first professional job. Right, but not lots of musicals on your acting resume, were there? Um, well, not not once I once <laughs> I was in college because then it became clear that I wasn't really I could sing well enough for community theater. So I did do I did qu- did do quite a few musicals in when I was growing up. But then you did do the plays at Circle Rep um as an actor, you did some of that. But the move to starting directing came Pretty fast upon it seems circle rep. Maybe you were doing. Were you doing directing with the Edge Company as well? Well, we didn't think of it as directing, but we would all sort of, you know, chime in on with with each other. I don't remember my my um, point of view being any more pronounced than anyone else's. But there was certainly just out of necessity, we would all sort of help each other with the scenes that Peter would write. But no, it was – well, my final – my the last few weeks of my senior year, it was after the school year was over. It was the first thing that I attempted to direct and it was uh, – there's that um, Jane Martin play, Talking With. Sure, series of monologues, series of for, monologues women. for women. And I asked four uh, uh, actresses at the school um, – I believe two women in my class and two women in the class below us to do these monologues and I kind of put together an evening. I don't even remember what – I think maybe it was watching Peter, Peter who was in my class had started writing at that time and creating his own work and I was really turned on by what they were doing. Um, and so I think – the idea of kind of creating something for myself was – that idea was new to me and, and, I, and I kind of piggybacked on what he was doing and so that was but, – but I, but I did it as a lark. Professional directing, mm-hmm. what was the first opportunity? The first opportunity was um, – again, I was a member – initially, I was a member of the, the lab at Circle Rep, which was the sort of the younger company and then I joined the company. Um, but uh, – and I would appear in pl- in plays there, and we were given like a hundred dollar budget, and they were every weekend, and and I had had a not very good experience as an actor there, and and I went to the man who was running the the lab, Michael Warren Powell, and said, I want I'd like to try directing my friend's play, and it was a play of Peter's, um, and uh, we mounted it one weekend. It was 
very, very successful. <laughs> and which, which play is this? It's called Imagining Brad. Okay. And then uh, Tanya Berezin, who was the artistic director then, said, we'd like to move it to the main stage next year, um, which they did. It was not received well at all. And she said, I think you have something and let's find something else for you to do. And then I directed a play called Babylon Gardens, a play by Tim Mason. And then I think I directed three hotels after that. And You did a show up at Long Wharf. At I did Sunday. a show up in Long Wharf yeah. also, yeah. Um, but that was – I can't remember when that was. The Long Wharf show I have is 91, Innocence Crusade. Hmm. So – Again, yeah. I'm I'm the stickler for dates. Yeah, so we, yeah. we don't need to obsess on it. Um, it's remarkable and wonderful that in a company like Circle Rep, here you you did a main stage show. You say it wasn't well received, and the artistic director says, you know, you've got something, and and thinks about more opportunities, which is tremendous. I mean, I've always said without Circle Rep and without um, that group of people, sort of. In, um, encouraging me and, and 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 helping me develop, and you know what I did know was sometimes in this business you're only as good as your last thing, and if your last if your last project doesn't go well, it it, it gets quiet for a while, and that was quite, was quite the opposite at Circle Rep. It was more like, what are you going to do next? What can we do? can we? Uh, but Innocence Crusade, there's no way it could have been eighty one. Ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As you're beginning to direct. You're still acting. Did you start to develop a feeling? I mean, did it just did it become dissatisfying to act, or was it that directing just appealed more? It didn't become. It, I wasn't conscious of it becoming dissatisfying to act. I was more conscious of the fact that I had just done about a year and a half in was arguably, you know one of the masterpieces of the last 50 years and – You're speaking of Angels in America. Speaking of Angels in America. And so I, I just thought what could I possibly do down the line that would equal this or or even come close? And I remember going to a, a few auditions, I think primarily for television things and thinking like this just doesn't – this isn't worth it. This is not worth – but but it wasn't a conscious decision to stop acting. I think what happened is simultaneously I got an agent and I started getting interesting plays offered to me to direct. And so I, I mean I was never particularly successful as an actor. I was a not a – I didn't audition well and I, I don't know. It just one day I woke up and I was no longer an actor. What does it mean to not audition well? What do you what do you think your faults were? Since now, of course, you've seen countless people audition over the years. I think it's it's um, I second guessed. I tried to second guess what what they wanted or what was going on in the room. Or I started to write a s- script about the person who went in in front of before me and how good they were. When I would psych myself out. And in fact, what I've learned being on the other side of the table is your only responsibility is to walk in that room and show, share your take on it and to know that quite often the best actor, the most interesting actor doesn't necessarily get the part, that there's a series of boxes that have to be ticked off. You have to, you have to, you have to be what the director has in mind. 
You have to look like what the director has in mind. You have to sound like what the author has in mind. So you can be a terrific actor and they see a, you know, a three-foot-tall blonde guy. I learned that late in life just by, mm. just by doing it and thinking like, oh, you know, I mean, I remember auditioning um, for someone when I became a member of the company at Naked Angels and I was doing this Nikki Silver play. And I remember this really fascinating actress coming in and she was the best actress that I saw. And she was completely wrong for it. And I wrote her a fan letter, just as, not a fan letter, but I wrote her a letter just saying, you are amazing. And da, da, da. that person turns out to be Edie Falco, you know, and a young man who came in at the time to audition for the real was again, fascinating. He wasn't exactly what I was looking for. It was Justin Kirk and I had written him a letter. So, so both of those actors are so unique and so idiosyncratic and they were memorable to me. And that's all you have to do is just come in and share you. Hmm. It must have been tough. I mean we always hear about people talking about failing to get a part as rejection and what you're saying is it's not rejection in, in the sense that it's not I don't want you. It's just that you may not fit all of the other needs of the production. Yeah. When you worked with Edie Falco – Years later, did she remember your notes? I don't think she did. I mean, I brought it up to her, so I either never got to her, um, um, or or I don't, or she, or she, or she, just she, it away. she needed the job and got a note from the director saying, "I'm not hiring you, but you're wonderful." And she said, "The heck with this." Yes, exactly. So after Angels, you then make the following year your Broadway debut as a director with a little-remembered show called What's Wrong With This Picture by I mean, Donald Margulies. Unless you go to Joe Allen's and then it's sitting. <laughs> and then it's the, right then there the for you. above the table. But what was, what was the experience of – you've said, OK, I'm really going to be a director and your first Broadway foray as director was not well-received, very short run. Yes. I mean did that shake your confidence? It was an interesting thing. I mean I feel you know, as painful as it was – I, I, two things happened. That play was offered to me and I read it and I didn't have um, – I, I didn't have that thing that happens that I've been able to identify now. I didn't have that thing go- happens which go- something goes off in my head and I think I must direct that. I didn't have a – I didn't have a connection to the play. That's just not to say it's not a good play. Um, but I didn't have a connection to the play and I turned the play down. Subsequent to that, they went after some other directors. They came back to me and in the meantime, I had seen Donald's wonderful play, uh, The Lohman Family Picnic, which I adored and it made me re-examine what's wrong with this picture and so I said yes. Now, now I think I have enough experience to know that if you don't have a connection, don't sign up for it. So I don't know that I was the right director for that. So that was one important thing that I learned. Also in terms of the context of doing when that play was done, I had just prior to that play opening on Broadway, I had directed Love, Valor, Compassion at um, Manhattan Theater Club. And then subsequently that production moved to Broadway as well. So in that one season, I had – Oh, so do I have backwards that Love, Valor came first? No, no, no. Oh, okay. well, Love, Valor came first off Broadway. At MTC, I see. So this interview – So I had yeah. – so, so, so um, what's wrong with this picture was between that and the, and the Broadway – so in that one season, I had what was a 
pretty horrific flop and a very embarrassing and very public first outing on Broadway. But I also directed the play that won the Tony that year and was nominated for a Tony. So it was it was a great equalizer. The balance of having those things, both of those things happen simultaneously. I thought, well, I'm not the worst and I'm not the best. But also to what you said earlier about you know, if you do something that doesn't succeed, you sometimes go cold really fast. You had you had a backup. I mean, it wasn't necessarily planned that way, but you could immediately go to the next job. And what's wrong with this picture didn't stand as this is the last thing people remember. Exactly. Yeah. For. Yeah. You know, there are so many shows that you've directed. You know, in the in the seventeen eighteen years since Angels. Um, it seems easier to ask you about the playwrights because you have had the good fortune of working multiple times with certain playwrights. So first, since you bring up Love, Valor, Terrence McNally, how did that partnership come to be? Did you know Terrence or did Lynn Meadow put you guys together? Um, no, it was um, – again, I give so much credit to Terrence McNally for the fact that I have a a directing career. It's it's the sort of the one-two punch of Circle Rep and Terrence McNally. Um, that uh, Love, Valor, Compassion had been what was being developed by Manhattan Theater Club over the course of a year, a couple of years, and there was another director attached to it. And shortly before it went into production, there was a parting of the ways, and they started to put feelers out for other directors. How I made it onto the list, I do not know. My guess is that Terrence probably saw something I did at Naked Angels. So I went to his apartment, which was down the street from where I was living. We didn't really know each other. And we had a very nice afternoon. We saw the play in the same way. I was naive enough to not be intimidated by the kind of staging demands of the play. And Terrence was willing to take a chance on me. And I don't know many other people who would have made that same choice. What's very interesting is that your first work with Terrence was on a new play and it was later that you did revivals of his work and yes. so often playwrights will see a young director who's done a nice job with an early work and says, okay, now come to work with me. He was really taking a flyer. Yes. Hmm. Yes. He really – I mean he and, – and it was it was a very, very uh, important play uh, for him and – the the courage it must have taken. I don't know. I mean, I try to remember it now, and when I'm making choices, uh, sometimes you know, in the in 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 the, in the past few years, I've I've thought to myself, you know what? It's you you're in a in a position that is similar to the position that Terrence was in. Take a chance on a young designer. Take a chance on somebody who doesn't have you know Broadway credits. Give back a little bit hmm. because it made a, it made a huge impact. On 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 my um, life as an artist, hmm. and without that, I don't know that I think the story would be very very different. Let's talk about some of the other playwrights. You did a couple of shows of Craig Lucas's. Yes, um, the experience of working with Craig. Well, Craig is is um, an an incredible uh, playwright, um, a, uh, a unique voice. Uh, wonderful to have in the room. Um, you know, Craig and I started working together 
after uh, Norman Rene, who had been his longtime collaborator, passed away. And and I think we were both still finding ourselves and we did some we did some good work together. We did some very interesting work together. And eventually I think we went as far as we could go together. But I adore him. I think he's I, I, I would see a Craig Lucas play any day of the week. Hmm. Richard Greenberg. Richard Greenberg is the smartest person in the room. Um hilarious um um, intimidating, uh, a great friend. I adore working with him, and uh, he's he's completely unique. I mean, he was he's the most prolific writer that I know, and you know, I mean, his first drafts are better than most people's plays, and um, we we had a good time. He taught me a lot about baseball. Seemingly a non sequitur, but Neil Simon. Neil Simon twice, yes. Both very different experiences. I think – I mean I learned a lot from him. The thing that what – I, what I admired most about Neil Simon was that he never lost his sense of awe in the theater. That he – there was – there was – I would look over and there was this kind of boyish sense of – um Awe was the only word I can think of. That he he he's not a jaded person. He's a tough person. He's a great craftsman. I mean, he's Neil Simon. I'm curious. We t- we've already talked a lot about going from being an actor to being a director. You acted in the premiere of a Paula Vogel play. Then subsequently, you directed a yes. Paula Vogel play. How do you manage the transition from – I mean in both cases you're serving the work but from being an actor to being an equal collaborator? Well, I think it is – I mean it, it, I mean, you, you sort of answered it. It is – Oh, I do that too much. <laughs> it is about – you know, I mean my, my – I want – my mission is to serve the work. My mission is not to impose my vision on the work but to serve the work, to understand what – what the writer intends, and to filter it through my own sensibilities, but but the, it begins with a written word for me. David Mamet, mm-hmm. you did revival of Glengarry Glen Ross, and then got to do a new Mamet play. Right, he is a writer who also directs his own work. Right. So, how do you manage that situation when you've got a writer who has had success directing their own work, but you're directing? Their new play. Again, I, I think of two very, very different experiences. Uh, with Glenn Gary, he was not – he did not see the production until opening night. Hmm. Um, that can be scary too. That could – that can be scary. He was not – he was thankfully not scary that night. Um, <laughs> Uh, I wasn't referring specifically <laughs> to Mr. Mamet. Well, I, yes, can, but you know, with any but yes, author, of course, you want it, You want them to like what yeah. you've done, and uh, so he was a great resource. Again, he uh, allowed me to call him up and ask very silly questions. He has some very specific ideas about sound design. He does not allow it. Um, so if you ask any director that has worked with him recently, we all sort of commiserate that we have to do these plays without a sound designer. What is, what does that mean? Is it that he doesn't want incidental music or texture? I mean, 
does he allow sound effects if necessary? Not really. Wow. Not he wants really. it just suppose, to be his words. I suppose words. if there was, if, uh, you know, if he's written, a, yeah, he must. I mean, if there's a if there's a phone ring, you'll you'll have to have that. But I think it's I think it is that. I think it, it comes it comes from a very pure place in him that he doesn't want a director editorializing with this choice of scene change music and editorializing the play. And so therefore he has a kind of a blanket policy of no sound design. None. Interesting. Makes doing his plays very, very, very challenging because as you know, in some of some of his plays are very episodic and the sets have to change. I mean, for instance, um uh Life in the Theater has how many scenes? Thirty six scenes. You know, if you're the director of that piece, the first question you're gonna ask is how are we going to change these scenes without something to come hmm. up? Um, so it's interesting. And then working with him on the new play was an entirely different experience in that he was in the room. He was making changes. He was – you know, he works like a musician and um, it's very rhythmic and, uh, you know, so it was it was being made up on the spot. To include this synopsis of, of great authors you've worked with, John Robin Bates. Yes. You've done a number of his plays over the years. For a time, you guys were partners. Yes, um, 12 years. You've continued to work together since. What was it like to direct the work of someone you're involved with and then what is it like to direct the work after that close relationship has has come to an end? Well, Robbie – I've always said that Robbie is the easiest collaborator that I've ever had or worked with. I mean he is – not only is he wildly talented, but he's very, very flexible. And I mean that might be specific to our relationship and the fact that he trusts me and knows that I only have his best interests at heart. But we, we have a very – it's very fluid. Um, though we don't have – though we're not together as you know, partners anymore, the, the friendship – has been sustained and is grow- so that's never really changed. So there was there, well, I'd have to imagine. I mean, and there's yeah. no way you would be directing his plays if yeah. you couldn't talk to each other. But I mean, he's still my closest friend, and and so we, we transitioned out of being of, of living together, but everything else has remained the same. How do you feel when you have that? Certainly, probably the most sustained relationship you've had with an author. Not a personal relationship, but professional relationship. Do you feel you had an influence on his work, and do you feel that his writing had an influence on your work? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, with all of the playwrights, I mean, I think if a, a healthy collaboration, you're going to, you are going to affect one another's work. There, you know, ideas. I always say, best idea wins. Um, you know, there there there's some staging things that happened in Take Me Out that came out of conversations that I had with Rich Greenberg. He didn't stage them, but but my first take on it was was going in a particular direction and he articulated something else and which made me think, oh, he's not looking for a kind of verisimilitude in terms of the staging. He's looking for he want what what I need to stage is this character of Mason Marzak, his romantic – so the staging was released from a kind of a reality and what I tried to find was the romance of it. Hmm. Um, and that was due to his reaction to a way that I had staged it. 
And, you know, and certainly I, suggestions, cuts, ideas, edits that I made to the script. And that's that to me is heaven when hmm. you have that kind of relationship. I've been fortunate in that. Almost all the relationships that I've had with writers have been like that. And when they come along and they're not like that, it's it's hell. Hmm. Yeah. Talk about musicals. Okay. Because certainly you said you did musicals in back in, in Rockford and maybe a little bit in college. But they weren't a big part of your life until suddenly in 2003 or presumably maybe a year or two earlier – Wicked comes along, a gigantic show in terms of dimensions. It seems the largest thing you'd ever directed Absolutely. up to that point. How did you come to Wicked? I came to Wicked or Wicked came to me okay. <laughs> because uh, um, of my long-term collaboration with David Stone, uh, the producer, one of the producers on it. And I think David was uh, – involved in the very early days of Wicked or certainly at early on in the developmental process. Not so much of the development of the material but in terms of kind of setting this – the path for this musical. And, and I think David was a great champion of mine and kept kind of you know, tossing my hat in the ring while other bigger names were also being bandied about. It was right around the time that I wanted to transition. I had done primarily new plays up until that point and I wanted to challenge myself into doing something on a larger canvas. Well, it's a huge canvas. Yeah. I mean what was the experience of taking on a show that had I imagine hundreds of costumes and an enormous set and probably the most actors you'd gotten to work with on a single show? Right. Um, how did you just deal with the scale? Well, although Wicked was going to be the – well, that's not true. Actually, I think Assassins was going to be the first musical that I was going to direct and that because of um, the events of September 11th was postponed. So then I was developing um, again through Terrence a musical at Lincoln Center called A Man of No Importance and Wicked simultaneously and they were both kind of vying for the same date. So I, I – I, if I'm not mistaken, Man of No Importance was the first musical that I directed in New York. That's true. That was a year before Wicked. Yeah. yeah. And so um, by the time I got to – in answer to your question, by the time I got to Wicked, I had already had some experience doing this kind of chamber musical you know, under the guidance of Andre Bishop and with Lynn and Stephen and Terrence who were incredible collaborators. And so I dipped my toe in the water. Got it. What appealed to you? I mean maybe it's hard now because we look at the enormous success and the multiple companies and all of that. But the core, why that musical? Man of No Importance sort of seems, even though it was a musical, of a piece with the other kind of work you'd been doing. Right. Wicked was a grand fantasy, full scale, full on. What appealed well, it's interesting that you say that that about Man of No Importance because, in fact, like I said, the first the first musical that I was scheduled to to, mm -hmm. to direct was Assassins, and that's really like that's that's truly like a, a you know a transition from a play to a musical, right? Um, when Wicked came along, you know, I thought it was a great idea. I thought it was a great idea, and I think I was naive enough to assume that I could. 
I, I guess I just never thought about the scale of it. I just hmm. showed up every day and did my work and um, – Arrogance? I don't know. Arrogance, <laughs> naivete, all of the above. But I think the material lends itself to musicalization. And, and again, what I've learned is, you know, make sure that that is true. Mm-hmm. Make sure that that's true. Because without it, it doesn't matter how many smart people are working on it. If it defies musicalization, you're always sunk. There needs to be a reason those people are singing. Yes. When you have a show like Wicked, it's now eight years in, multiple companies, international companies, how involved are you on a day-to-day basis with the life of that show in all of its incarnations? And what has it been like to live with a show for eight years? Because certainly that's – it's what everyone dreams of, but then there's the reality of it. Yeah. Well – after the Broadway production and as we started to um, roll out other companies, I directed almost every company um, that you – know, certainly all the tours, the London production. In fact, going – being able to do the play in London allowed us to kind of go back and with the pressure off us, the pressure of a Broadway opening looming – and we actually had been able to watch the show for a while and think like, oh, I wish we'd done this differently. And we made a lot of changes in London and then put the changes into the, all of the other companies. So I was, I've, I've been involved in the launch of most of the companies. Then what happens when it, when it becomes um, kind of a machine like Wicked is, is that there's this team of people, these miraculous people who are really responsible for the day-to-day upkeep of it. And I will see – Every company two or three times a year. I go over to London once a year for a week when they recast. I've seen most of the foreign companies, and um, but now we pretty much, you know, my associate is Lisa Leguio, and she really does the day-to-day running of the show. I get show reports every night from every company, scan them, see if anything, everything looks okay. But um, it becomes something else. You spoke of assassins, and it's been much written about that. And you already mentioned that it was originally planned for 2001, but in the wake of 9-11, it was postponed. In the time from when you were originally conceiving the show, the intervening event, and finally doing it a few years later, did your perception of the show change or yeah. your conception of the show change? It did. It did. I looked and it was an entirely different design, an hmm. entirely different design. And they were also just – there were images in the musical – um, my apartment was very close to the World Trade Center, so there were images in the musical that were informed by what I saw that day. It was very different. What it did, what the time, the time away from the piece did was it allowed all of us working on it to kind of synthesize the vision of it. I think it was much more, um, much more episodic. And we didn't. We didn't have. We, there was not a unifying kind of visual thought uh, or, or metaphor for the show, and that kind of came together, you know, in the intervening year or so. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Assassins was not a small show. Wicked, as I've probably said far too much, was a very big show. You've done a number of very intimate shows subsequent to that. It's not like you suddenly became 
only a big musical guy. You did nine to five, mm -hmm. certainly, but there are pieces like Blackbird and The Receptionist and The Pride and the other place. I mean, these are intimate shows in, in small spaces. Does that make a difference to you in terms of, of the scale you're working on or is it just if the piece speaks to you? It does. I mean, it, uh, yes, of course, right. The, the, the piece has to speak to me but but it was a conscious decision after – you know, I love working on Broadway. I, I truly – there's something really uh, challenging about it but it's also very satisfying. But I feel like I've done my best work and my most interesting work and I've challenged myself more uh, in some of these smaller theaters. And so it was a conscious decision to kind of go back and to try to get better and to try to keep challenging. You know, when you're on Broadway, if you need something and you have the right producer, you can throw money at it. But if you work at MCC and your budget for the set is, you know, a certain number, you better be creative about how you're going to make that money, uh, you know, last. And it forces – it has forced me to come up with more creative solutions and I'm very interested in that right now. Hmm. There's a great irony about Other Desert Cities because it was originally announced for Broadway. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, Robbie said he didn't want that pressure. I think ultimately what he started to feel – he was looking around at the landscape of Broadway and you know, feeling like you, know, you really have one shot and – to, to, at the audience and, and, and it's, there's so many star-driven productions right now and I think it was his first play in five or six years and I don't think he wanted it to live or die and whether people were buying tickets to see, you know, X person. I mean the irony is that yes. after that, the cast that we put together – Stocker was Channing, Linda Lavin, Stacey Keach, Keach and then Beth Marvel, Marvel and uh, Tom Sadowski. I mean it's That's the, the great cast. I know but there's also something about coming in under the radar which is very, very nice because it allows you to work on the play. We used – I think we had something like four weeks of previews and we used – previews of that play to really, really refine it and do kind of detailed work on it and for the actors to get comfortable. When you're doing that kind of work on Broadway, you're doing it under the glare of, you know, thousand a thousand people seeing it every night, going to their computers and chiming in on their opinion about it. You don't have that so much when you work at MCC or Lincoln Center. You don't have that same kind of noise around you. Hmm. You know, and the good place can overcome initially what what is initially bad buzz and turn around. but sometimes there's an avalanche of bad buzz about a play and you can't get out from underneath it hmm. and so you know i think i think ultimately what he did was he sat down and said this is a very important play for me it's my return to the theater after being in LA for years. I want to go somewhere where I feel protected and I feel safe. And it worked because we're going to see it again. We're going to see it again in the fall, yes. And is there anything else you've got coming up that you can tell us about at this point? Uh, that's it right now. So other desert cities in the fall, right now, The Normal Heart on Broadway. Joe Mantello, thank you for spending time with us today on thank Downstage so Center. Thank you. 
Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhardt. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded at the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we're a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.